Here we are once again, Screen Heat Miami. We're back. Yes, yes, yes. Another scorcher. Another scorcher. It was the hottest day recorded ever. That's right. Three days ago. That's pretty hot. Speaking of hot, my co-host, Kevin Sharpley, is here with us. Uh, He is the man in town doing all these amazing interviews, including the one that we have coming up today. Uh, Another star of the Miami media and film market, Mr. Paul Brett. That was a really cool interview. Yes, it was. It was amazing. Paul Brett has had such an illustrious career, and he really did take us through the ups, downs, ins, outs, sideways of the industry. Yes. And, you know, we have to give it up for the co-host, J.L. Martinez, who actually was hugely responsible for making the interview with Paul Brett happened in the first place. Yes. Yeah. So that, yeah, this interview, you know, again, intentionally, we had all these amazing people here, including our good friends from across the pond. uh, Paul Brett being one of them who's been uh, part of the conference for for several years now. Uh, Again, a highly talented British producer who uh, has done everything from uh, the indie film Chef, uh, partially shot here in Miami, to the Academy Award winning The King's Speech. He's also worked on the television side with shows like Wolf Hall uh, and now uh, through his new company, Flying Tiger, is doing some really interesting things between the UK and China and the US. So it was really cool to bring him into the MMFM family uh, and have that sort of develop this relationship that now every year he comes and is what we call one of our MMFM gurus. He is a guru. I mean, his career spans so long. Dances with wolves. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, going back to his days doing uh, marketing uh, for Miramax out of the London office, uh, he's got really a storied history and and just a really interesting dude. So I'm very excited to jump into that interview. And so, but before that, you know, we're going to talk a, about a few more things. We got to give a shout out to our amazing sponsors, Chemical, Chemical, the Miami Media and Film Market, Cinevision, Cinevision, and of course, Kajik Multimedia, Kajik Multimedia. Boom, boom goes the dynamite. <laughs> We're rocking. So what else is going on this week? There's a lot going on. Well, I saw a movie yesterday, Hobbs and Shaw. What'd you think? Electric. Yeah? We need those movies, man. Ah, it's a franchise. <laughs> what a franchise. Oh, yeah. A franchise of a franchise. <laughs> the franchise with spinoffs and multiple legs and arteries. <laughs> a lot. A lot. Like a tentacle octopus calamari. It was... Yeah. Um, it was... Just a fun ride, you know, and a great departure. I mean, it was, you know, laugh from beginning to end. A lot of action. You know, The Rock is always going to bring it. And Jason Statham. I think that, you know, we talk about, you know, what is, you know, the next form of action hero? What is the next form of your hasta la vista baby? Right. And certainly The Rock. And now Jason Statham um, have filled those shoes. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because, you know, we, I want to talk about brand this week and, and, and what it means to be a brand and how important that is, whether you're a film or an artist. Because like you said, you know, going back to the 80s with, with guys like Schwarzenegger, getting the chopper, <laughs> I'll be back. But that was recent, though. Wasn't you that know, Expendables? Yeah, yeah, it could be an Expendables. Well, but I, I, Another you brand, know, get him to but the top. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, the, these, these actors, these action stars were the brands of their day, whether it was Sly or Schwarzenegger. And then later, when we saw Bruce Willis make that transition from being basically a TV comedy actor in Moonlighting, uh, we are going to have one of the writers of that show come Karen up Hall. soon, Karen Hall, uh, to then all of a sudden being this crazy action hero in Die Hard. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so it's really great to see this evolution. Right. And, you know, The Rock is in everything. And talking about the homeboy, yeah, becoming an action star brand in and of his own, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. The U. The U, played football, still has a home here in South Florida, uh, had his series Ballers here for the first two seasons. Now they're out in Los Angeles with that. But definitely he has created an interesting career out of his brand and his sort of marquee and star power first through the WWE and now through his evolution as a as an action star essentially and what's really great for me is to see the production company seven bucks productions Mm. and how big that has grown and then danny garcia who is also from the u a cuban-american girl from miami raised in our community yeah went to the university of miami met dwayne johnson there in their formative years and uh, launched this this company together obviously they also launched I, i guess a marriage and kid yeah but uh but also started their career together back at the university of miami uh, and danny a very smart manager and producer in her own right doing some amazing work with with dwayne johnson so it's great to see how this local talent really has utilized their platform uh in order to do great things not only here locally but all around the world and really being part of that global machinery that we keep talking about yeah it was great you know we had ballers the first few seasons that's right yeah the first two seasons we had that that great HBO show here, which was, you know, really interesting how it kind of took advantage of the community and the locations and the idea that all these amazing sports stars from all these different disciplines would just come and hang out in Miami and and have an interesting life here even after football. Yeah. And to, you know, see these brands develop and blossom. Mm -hmm. I mean, Ballers is going into its fifth season. That's right. That's that's amazing. And it's, you know, brand, talk about that. I mean, really, it's it's a whole part of, of what we've been talking about. These new streaming wars have these big studios and networks and media companies are really relying now on their brands to go direct to consumer. I mean, when, look at this. We're now in August hmm. and Disney has already hit that mark as the biggest, biggest box office season in history. I mean, we're talking about over seven billion dollars cumulatively, right? We're, the year's not even up. Cumulatively. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cumulatively? Cumulatively? Exactly. <laughs> I have to practice my British. I think that it sounds... The rain in Spain falls mainly in the cumulative Spain. There you go. There we are. Yeah, now I'll I- never make a mistake. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> that, and that's, but, but, but it is something that's brilliant because Disney now has already topped its year from two years ago. Right. Just think about that. And, and, you know, a lot of that, when you're a major studio or media company, that's all planned out years in advance. Of so uh, what's interesting about Disney this year is I think they knew that Disney Plus was going to launch at the end of this year, beginning of 2020. So they had to have a big sort of launching pad with all these amazing films that were topping the billion dollar mark in theaters, knowing that the next place you're going to see it is no longer going to be on on Netflix, uh, on on demand. It's going to be on one, on their on own their platform, platform, on their own OTT. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that was that was intentionally planned. I don't know how big of a year Disney's going to have at the box office next year, mm-hmm. but definitely I think that they were guns ablazing, knowing that 2019 had to be you know the launch of this monolithic media company showing you know their full muscle, their full regalia. As right. it were. And Whoa. they're putting out. Setting sail this morning. <laughs> That's right. 
but uh, but yeah, I think and I think that's all intentional. And I think what's interesting now, and and we'll talk about Netflix for the first time ever actually losing subscribers, lost a ton of money on Wall Street. I think that they're starting to feel the chink in the armor, knowing that that these big media companies are starting to pull their IP out of their platform and starting to launch their own initiatives, knowing that the future is really direct to consumer. So how is how is Netflix going to punch back now that they're in a corner? Do you think that that has to do with brand, though? Do you think Netflix needs one of these big brand players? Do they need... I mean, they have Stranger Things. Right. So Stranger Things has been a flagship for them, really. Right? Right. Uh, we talked about House of Cards, and that was a pivot for Netflix, actually. Sure. Into their own original content. Yeah. I think that was a big pivot. But do you think that there's a pivot into this long-standing brand because you know right. disney i mean you know of course they have star wars. i mean they have brands within brands within brands right because right. they have star wars they have marvel and then even within those universes those brands then are expansive across so many different platforms sure so do you think that you know this whole notion of having brands that then can extend across platforms you think about warner media right. and then hbo hbo has game of thrones and look at Ga- game of thrones those tentacles yeah expand across many different platforms many different medias and now you're gonna now have the prequels of course right. there's books right you know and you, you can just imagine how far that brand is gonna go I mean, it's really created. You heard Adrian Wooten in the first episode talk about how when they had the conversation Mm. about where Game of Thrones was going to go. And Ireland lobbied very hard to get it because they knew that it would bring tourism. It would bring all of these things that Ireland already had. But this type of robust tourist ecosystem that they have now i mean right. i think that that was genius i mean when yeah when you talk about what northern ireland did to get that show and the like you said having that foresight to think beyond the content itself beyond being able to build sound stages and having all the cast and crew there several months out of the year and now like you said the new prequels that are launching based on the original show they saw it from a tourist perspective, they're driving traffic. Essentially, now some of those locations and those sets have become tourist attractions, and it's something that, again, you know, Disney has the power to do. We know we're from Florida. That's right. A few miles up the road. Well, look, I just went to, you know, I didn't go to to Disney. I just went to Universal, and this was my first time going to the Harry Potter uh, exhibit. I mean, right. th- it was really brilliant. You know, you're you're actually in the mind of J.K. Rollins physically. You can touch. Her mind. <laughs> right. Wasn't that you know? Universal's uh, logline for a while where you can live the movies? That was like, it was something to that effect, right? You really feel it, though. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. I haven't been to, you know, Disney Disneyland or Disney World in a long time, but still, the same thing. You can feel it, you can touch it. You right. Can, and interesting about Universal, apparently they have 750 acres nearby where they're actually planning a new phase of their theme parks. Mm-hmm. So they are going full on saying that, you know, we have. IP that has value that's recognizable and we're going to start to build our worlds that you can live uh, just like Disney's doing now with the opening of, of the Star Wars galaxy and inside oh, yeah. of uh, Disneyland's already open and then now I believe at the end of August uh, Disney Studios in Orlando will be opening their version as well where again you become part of that universe part of this brand that you experienced as a kid growing up and now you're living it you know their mm-hmm. cast members go as far as to come up with specific identities and kind of make you feel 
feel like you are actually living on this faraway planet in the Star Wars galaxy. So do you think that's what's next for Netflix? You know, how are they going to do a it? Brand? Are they going to invest in theme parks? Are they, they going to well, have not theme parks? But I mean, you, and you need a property. But I think that that has to be a whole division. Like, you know, obviously we don't run Netflix, but we can comment on it. I think that has to be a whole division of Netflix just dedicated to finding what is going to be that next IP that they can take control of now that can become one of those legacy brands that can live on beyond the shows themselves, beyond the movies, into merchandising, into social media, into physical experiences right. for their fans. Yeah, the intellectual property. But, you know, speaking of brands... We are a Miami brand. Right. And you saw a movie a couple of days ago. This past weekend, yes. I saw it's a a little indie film being distributed by A24. It's called The Farewell, directed by Lulu Wang, who is originally from Beijing, China, and moved with her parents to Miami when she was about six years old. Uh, Took piano lessons here, got a, a... admitted to the New World School of the Arts. We'll talk a little bit more about that particular institution, but it's given sort of birth to a lot of very renowned filmmakers and producers. Terrell, Terrell Alvin McCraney. That's right. Terrell definitely went to New World. Randall Emmett, who has a big Netflix movie coming out that he produced called The Irishman as well, which, again, is Netflix's, again, four-way into trying to do bigger things. It's a $120 million something Scorsese crime drama. And so, but this, this... This young lady who came from China with her parents, went to school here, then went to Boston College, moved to L.A., uh, wrote and directed a very heartwarming story, a very personal story with very universal elements about dealing with family, particularly sort of at the end of life experience and how her family actually covered up what her grandma was going through through for personal reasons for cultural reasons and it's really just it's it's a it's a I don't want to say it's a simple story but it is it's a very simple story but the message and the way it's told is so powerful the mixture of the comedy with the drama uh I I haven't gotten emotional in a theater in years but I actually felt through this story of this Chinese American girl a a strong connection to my own family Uh, and and again I'm I'm not from that culture I am from Miami my my parents and grandparents are, are Latino, Hispanic, but I felt the same thing. It's like, you know, you, you feel like family is family, no matter what culture you're from, no matter where you're from. I think uh, some of Paul Brett's movies that he's going to get into, Chef is a very personal story as well with universal elements. Even The King's Speech, a much bigger oh, platform, yeah. right? Yeah, but um, The King's Speech is about family. It's all about family. It is about family. So, yeah. so yeah, I felt like, you know, if you haven't gone out to see it, you should definitely go out, try to see it in the theater if you can. It's, well, Fair- The Farewell has bu- a lot of buzz. A lot of Oscar buzz already. A lot of people saying that it's one of the top films of the year. Got an amazing score on Rotten Tomatoes. I think it's like at 89% from the fans and 99% from the critics. Wow. So it's, it's definitely making moves. So we're very excited. And per screen box office on the farewell is very high right yeah yeah it's up there so it's it's definitely a contender and again lulu talks about getting a, a big offer i believe at sundance from one of the big streamers which she turned down in favor of working with a24 and going theatrical so you know obviously that was a risk on her part and her investors part but it seems that at least uh now it is paying off and that she's getting a lot of buzz she's getting a lot of a lot of press coverage a lot of social media coverage on this particular story so we're we're really for Lulu Wang, I really hope that this turns out well. Yeah, for you know, her. I love I love to hear these kind of stories. You know, where people, you know, forego traditional thought mm. and you know, in lieu of strategy, right? In terms of 
where the movie is going to go, how it's going to be placed, and how the movie plays out. And this is what I loved about the interview with Paul Brett. Mm. Because Paul Brett, as you'll hear in the interview, really speaks on how he wanted to create a space, helped to create a space where the director's vision would be able to you know, expand and come through. So I really am excited about this interview. Me too. Let's do it. And I'm excited to give this interview to our listeners, Mr. Paul Brett. There you go. Moderated by Mr. Kevin Sharpley. We'll be back. Boom. This is Paul Brett, a flying tiger from London in England. This is my fourth visit in five years to uh, MMFM, the Miami Media Film Market. And it is based in the Biltmore Hotel in Coral Gables in... Florida, um, and uh, it's a fantastic venue which sums up a lot about South Florida, which is it's very relaxing and yet it's also built for business. So there's plenty of room to meet, mingle, and share ideas with old friends and new. And that's something that is beautifully facilitated by the people here and made especially easy because of the fabulous environment. So, you know, the Miami Media and Film Market, this is the ninth year. We're going to be going into the 10th year. And I think that it's really been filled with, you know, a lot of outreach, a lot of connection, Mm -hmm. both amongst the people that have participated in it, but also the audiences. And they have changed over time. Mm -hmm. They've grown. And they've grown with us. So, you know, it's really been an honor and a privilege to have you. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is an honor and a privilege to have you here for our podcast. You're very kind. And I am ready to go on this journey. So um, I just want to start with, um, you know, some of the projects that you have done in your career. Mm -hmm. Um, So can you tell our listeners uh, some of the projects? Well, I've been in the business for 35 years and I started in... uh, Uh, um, video uh, and pay TV which was in its infancy when I I started in it and uh, I've been uh, traditionally uh, dealing with marketing and distribution and latterly with the financing of feature films so I've worked on independent British films like The King's Speech, independent American films like Chef, and historically some very big movies like Terminator 2, Basic Instinct, Dances with Wolves. Um, So I've also worked for the government because I've worked for the British Film Institute, and I've uh, got a fairly good knowledge of exhibition, of production, of finance, of film education, and most particularly of distribution. My motto is that it really isn't that hard to finance a film. It isn't that difficult to make the film itself, but the real trick is getting anyone to see it. There's so much material out there nowadays that you have to really think from the get-go of who your audience is and how you want them to view it. Okay, so definitely we're going to get back to that distribution part in just a minute. Mm -hmm. We'll circle back to that because I always, you know, try to then start from the beginning, you know, and how did you get into the industry? Where are you from? 
So I'm from London, England, and my parents were not in the business, were big fans of movies. So my father brought me up to believe that the greats were Bogart and Cagney and Karloff, and my mother that they were Crawford and Dietrich and Taylor. So uh, they, uh, uh, we watched films... I watched films with either parent and uh, um, and very occasionally with both of them, um, but really felt that uh, film was something that I had a calling to, something that I really enjoyed. And from a very early age, I was very interested in the marketing of films. I loved trailers, I loved posters, and I loved the entire process of persuading people to go to the cinema. I really enjoyed the environment of watching a movie with an audience in a darkened theatre, um, but I loved the fact that you could see such a wide variety of films through video, which came up, was born during my earliest part of my career. Um, so I didn't get born into the business, and I had to come through a circuitous route, uh, meaning that I studied business at university and I applied those principles to of how the film was going to be consumed by its audience and bringing a business-like uh, mentality to it, yet enjoying the creativity of the art form. You know, this is interesting because, you know, you have someone like Quentin Tarantino who really cut his teeth first in video. Mm -hmm. You know, he worked in a video store. It's, you know, a storied story that, uh, you know, he watched just, mm -hmm. you know, tons and tons of films and then, you know, really developed a lot you know, in, in that video part of the business. Well, it's quite funny because while I was still at university, I did computer testing about the theories of, of how we think that uh, the idea is that everything we do uh, through walking, sleeping, eating is a choice, a binary choice between we go left, we go right, we go forward, we go backwards. And that I, I took this computer, early, early computer test about uh, saying, that, you know, I wanted to be a film producer. And I was advised not to do it because my taste was too eclectic, that I liked too much, that I wouldn't be able to focus on a certain genre. And that has been my advantage. I've always enjoyed managing a slate. And there's when people say, what are you looking for? I'll, I'll always say, whatever there's an audience for, I don't particularly like torture porn. And I find that... Uh, I will, I'm very interested in commercial uh, material because there's no shame in finding a large audience. But I'll also look to more in the idiosyncratic material and I enjoy the process of discovering new stuff as well as going back and learning on, about the history of the medium itself. Yeah, I mean, you know, when, when you take a film like King's Speech which is, uh -huh. you know, an independent film, but also, you know, the film had a commercial appeal, but it wasn't necessarily a commercial film, was it? When we were financing it, I could see its commercial appeal far more than the other producers from the get-go. You know, it was just seen as another British film. And because it was about family and that people respond to it in a very primal way, that it's about a perfect family and it's about... 
you know, we all have family one way or another. Even if it's a lack of family, that family motif is there. And that I knew it had an ability to connect. And that is entirely down to the skill of Tom Hooper, but also the fantastic production that allowed him to express himself and allow David Seidler's story to come through. So um, it was finding the uh, allowing the filmmakers to make the very best they could within an incredibly constricted budget and then simply it took off from its very first screening the film was universally liked it connected in a way that very few films do and it was literally the first film that I sort of walked out of the preview theatre sort of floating like I did when I saw Dances with Wolves because there again was a unique film that that connected with people in a very uh, deep and meaningful fashion so that the ultimate effect that you want if you're producing your first film or your 20th picture is that when the credits roll you want people to get up get up out of their seat, leave the theatre and find the first person, whether it's a stranger or their best friend, and say, you've got to see this film. It has such an impact that it's like love at first sight. And a lot of the stuff about the business, whether you're approaching financiers, whether you are seeking collaboration with a director or a producer or acting talent, it's like dating. It's about the connection it you can't express everything in words some of it is a gut feel and it's capturing magic in a bottle so chef dances mm-hmm. with wolves king speech different films totally totally different types the, of the, films. The, the 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 really interesting thing is that we speak today uh, it's it's Friday, it's the 7th of June, and today Netflix are dropping The Chef Show. And this is something that uh, John Favreau has been working on for the last four years. A year after, I mean, Chef goes back five years now, 2014. And a year after that, he was enjoying cooking, he was enjoying the fact that he'd collaborated with a master chef in producing this film. And he thought, that isn't it, the story isn't over. The film is contained, it wasn't set for a sequel, but now he's produced a documentary drama series with his friends about the communal joy of eating. And the thing about this project is that it's been done synchronously with him doing one of the most anticipated films of the year, the live-action Lion King, which is a colossal, massive undertaking. Yet John Favreau has still found time to do a very low-budget approach that's about friendship. It's about the communal joy in eating together. And that's something that's very important to him as a human being, And as a filmmaker, he has an almost limitless capacity and appetite to tell stories uh, and to hear other people's stories. So it's fascinating to me uh, with Chef that he really needed, after doing big pictures like Iron Man, uh, that he wanted to do something that was deeply personal, uh, that was something that he grew up with, and that he could use friendship rather than huge budgets to tell the story. And so that's an important one. Dances with Wolves, again, 
absolute passion project. Costner had been living with the, the story, wanted to tell it in his way, knew it was going to be a three-hour picture. In fact, I worked on the four-hour cut. There is a very special edition of a four-hour version of Dances of Wolves. And he knew that the, this leisurely way of editing a film and would allow an audience to immerse themselves in a mystical distant past that had incredible resonance with today and our future and how we develop as uh, uh, as humanity as well as a nation um, it, because he felt such a strong connection to the natives who were being usurped from their land and he felt that story had not been told and he was right so you know usually as that sort of save, you know, some case studies for the end, but we're already in, in, in this area. So I just want to talk a little bit about uh, this film, which is Chef, and I love the film. You know, mm -hmm. I'm an amateur chef myself. Mm -hmm. So in w one of my favorite uh, shows on Netflix is sh the show called Chef's Table. Yeah. It's, it's one of my favorite shows, period, mm -hmm. you know. But, uh, you know, you said it was a personal project. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the process of um, making a film like that happen? Well, I'll be completely honest with you that we heard about the project and uh, it was being sold by a sales agency uh, that uh, is is no more, and uh, that th there had been some problems involved with that, and this was involved with a bridging deal that where we put some last money in, but we made it happen. I could look John Favreau in the eye right now, and he he knows that the film wouldn't have been made without myself and my business partner uh, having uh, put the money in that got it over the line so that it would be made, and the film was done without uh, paying due concern to where the best tax credits were and so on. It's a road story. It, it followed a process uh, from Los Angeles to Miami. We filmed at Versailles and uh, in, in Miami, the Cuban restaurant. And then on the road uh, through uh, 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 New Orleans to Austin, Texas, and then eventually back to Los Angeles. And so it's a road movie, and it's a film about challenges, about defeats, about second chances, and most importantly, there you go again, about family and what family means and who your real family is, whether it's your birth family or your adopted family and uh, uh, the, the, the friends that we make that become family. And uh, it's got a lot of humour to it. It's got a lot of warmth. And it's definitely the best soundtrack of the year. And it's one of the all-time great soundtrack albums because it's eclectic, it's new, and it's um, the CD of it, if you go for those old-fashioned things, is absolutely crammed with recipes. And that's one of the things about this new show that Netflix has dropped today uh, uh, is that it's filled with recipes because there's an absolute passion for you to not only re-examine your relationships, re-examine where you are on the road of life, but also just to try new things in terms of food, uh, that to experiment with the very spice of life.
So, Chef was uh, more of a you know a personal journey. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between films that feel more personal and then bigger sweeping films? You know the oh, it's 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 really simple. It's really simple. Is that you know that there it, this is show business and the vast majority of what is there in the multiplex we could get up out of our seats right now and go into the local multiplex and just see and we'd look up there and we would see um the dc comics the marvel universe uh the pixar movies the star wars of this world and these are businesses they are they are have marketing budgets which are absolutely uh, comparable to the launch of a new motor vehicle and they are global launches that are um, done on a very industrial scale. Then there's what we deal with at the MMFM, and that is the personal stories that are not being done for money. You know, one is commercial. Money is going to be at the root of it because every film costs money, even if it's made with your own, you know, shot on your own camera, on your own phone, and edited on your laptop in your bedroom at home. There is a cost. There is an opportunity cost of what you could be doing with your time, earning a more regular and well-defined income. But it's about the personal progress through it. And that means it's about the relationships and the favours that you lean on in order to get the project made and across the finish line. So um, it's the the process of a film and what MMFM encourage, encourages you to explore is relationships and borrowing and using favours and seeking out the good in people and, you know, being true to your word, doing what you say you will do when you said you'll do it because people will depend on you and the sheer process of making a feature film will enhance you as a human being because you will see your place on the planet and how what you can do will have an impact on everyone around you. It's why my favourite film is It's a Wonderful Life because that film is the best example ever made of showing what an individual's place on the planet is and how their activities their interactions impact on everybody and in our lowest moments when we feel oh why am i doing this oh what is the purpose what are we doing here it there's no point in this and at those lowest moments that's when the door opens that's when the star sparkles in the darkest night and we can see that's it and we get up and we do it again and we find uh, our purpose on the planet and we find out why we're here and how we can connect with others. That's the word I keep coming back to with MMFM. It's about connection, making connections, re-establishing connections and building bonds with others. So is that what the industry is about? Absolutely. Connecting. Correct. It's it, my The most important phrase in the English language is the frontispiece to E.M. Forster's Howard's End. And those two words are only connect. So next time you look at yourself in a restaurant or in a classroom or even on a commute and uh, you just look about that room 
uh, or carriage or whatever, and you realise that if you have the ability to truly listen and not just hear, but if you make a connection with people, you will find connections you never knew that existed. So every time I get in a taxi, I'll say, where are you from? And 99 times out of 100, people will tell you. They don't get offended. Uh, it's like, what do you mean, where am I from? You know, are you asking about my nationality? Are you asking about my race? No. They, if you're asking about where their home is, so I'll say, where are you from? And they mean, where do I live? Or where am I from? And I'm saying, no, where are you from? Where are you from originally? And where's your family of origin? People like talking about that, and they like to explain where they're from. And then you can make a connection. And it doesn't matter if it, they're from Ethiopia or Venezuela or China or Budapest, that you will find that they will be happy to talk about where they're from and their origins because that's what cinema is. It's about telling stories of our origins and our destinations and the journey in between. So I just want to get into some of the nuts and bolts of it. What mm -hmm. is producing? How producing produce? is putting, it's producing is cooking. That, let's go back to chef. It's a, it's a very good analogy because you take ingredients and you make something greater than the sum of the parts. And that's the act of producing. It's the most important role in the film because it's taking the individual skills bringing them together and lining them up in a way that they can produce more than they could do individually. Now, that is like hurting cats because everyone on that film set has a creative bone. They are all creative sorts and they need managing and that means understanding what people are after and the producer's role is to ensure that they fulfill the director's vision and if that director does not have the same vision as the producer that will lead to tears before bedtime wow so that does lead actually into the next thing i was going to talk about which is mm -hmm. challenges you mm -hmm. know what are some of the challenges that that you've come across lack of money it's always about that. It's it always comes down to money. That and it, money buys you time. Time is what allows the film to ferment, to cook properly, and to be served correctly. You know that you can create the greatest dish, but if you serve it on dirty crockery in an unpleasant environment, that won't be good. Uh, it's you know a great meal is about sharing with family, with friends in a nice environment that makes the whole thing memorable. So we live in a time of Instagram photos of the dish as it's served, but in fact, what we remember most about the evening is the conviviality of the conversation. And there's no way that you can truly enjoy a film without discussing it with people. And so the role of the critic is important and how we communicate that. And it's a great sadness to me that, you know, life has come down to, you know, the number of stars that a film gets rather than a conversation about its impact, its intent and where it's going. So the greatest challenge is always going to be money. It's about getting the most value up on the screen with the least expenditure of resources so that you've got 
fuel in the tank to do the extra mile, to get the extra shot, to make sure that the your vision is perfected and that you have got room to edit it so that you don't waste the viewer's time but you take them on an emotionally satisfying journey so i just want to go back and take as a case study the king's speech okay um can you talk about the process of the king's speech because you said that you know on the particular budget that you had, you know, you squeezed quite a bit out. Well, that was actually, it was all done correctly. Um, that Originally, the script came in, and when we had it, that it was beginning its life of finding its financial footing. And it was uh, lucky for us that the producer, who I'd known since he'd started out in the business uh, on a picture called Opal Dream, which is a little film shot in Australia, um, that uh, he had done his first major production as a producer, uh, uh, introduced Michael Fassbender to the world, and that was a film called Hunger, about the uh, uh, hunger strike of Bobby Sands, uh, the IRA um, uh, 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 um, uh, uh, protester who died in prison and that uh, film led on to a film of one of the greatest rock bands in history, Joy Division and that film was the directorial debut of the uh, photographer and video maker Anton Corbin um, Control and that was just a superb film, I remember being lucky enough to see it in Cannes and crying when I watched it because I loved the band so much and then the third film, uh, we tried to work on both of those pictures and it hadn't worked out and then the third time lucky uh, Ian came in with the script and they already had in place an output deal with a company called Momentum that was owned by Alliance a Canadian company and so there was a distribution in place for the UK and uh, Scandinavia and, 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 and Canada and so it couldn't go to um, another deal because Peter Rice at uh, Fox Searchlight had wanted to do the film because uh, it was something that was very personal to him but they couldn't do it because territories were already gone so we put together the financing for the rest of the picture and the Weinstein company came in and we cash flowed them and we went on the journey together and we became a team and uh, the, the unfortunate thing I referred to about the budget is just before principal photography there was a catastrophic change in the exchange rate and a million dollars was wiped off the budget and normally uh, a producer would just salami slice off each department but it Ian had a brilliant brainwave and he just took out the coronation scene which would have been very expensive and instead uh, uh, the family in the penultimate scene of the film watch the coronation on uh, 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 Super 8 film in the attic uh, with the Archbishop of Canterbury Cosmo uh, played by Derek Jacobi, and uh, it unites the family in the face of the enemy, as it were, and they, uh, um, it, we then go into the final sequence of the film, The King's Speech itself. So it worked out brilliantly, um, and it meant that uh, everyone could do the best they could 
on limited funds to make sure the production looked as great as it could do and that it was um, uh, uh, able to be satisfying so that nobody who saw the film The King's Speech went, oh, God, that looked cheap, or that was, um, you, you know, if only. But the most telling fact is that um, each episode of The Crown on Netflix is the same as the cost of the entire King's Speech. Yeah, well, you know, the, and that's something I was going to get back, you know, a, a, a little bit later in the interview, but the changes in the industry, because mm-hmm. the industry has changed dynamically. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yes. Well, it's the single greatest and most important thing is in the last five years, the impact of Netflix, because, um, you know, I've always, when financing uh, movies and television and so forth, when someone comes to me with an idea, the first thing I say is, so how do you want this to be seen? Is this story for the multiplex? Is it for the art house? Is it something that you want to distribute uh, 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 on on video, as it were? That's long gone. You know, Is it a TV movie? Is it something that lends itself to a 90-minute motion picture? Or is this something that should be told as a mini-series, as a limited series? or is it something that could stream over 10 episodes and have season two and have season three? And it's allowed different ways of storytelling, but there's a downside to that because, you know, you could be sitting with your beloved on the couch and you pick up the remote and you put it at the carousel and whether you're on Amazon or you're on Hulu or you're on Netflix, if a new season has dropped, do you want to commit to watching 10 episodes of that? Are you going to give it a go? Are you going to try it out? And how many shows have you watched where you've got through the first episode and then you think, shall we do the second? You know, I don't know. And you, you, you move on. And then you might come back to it because you hear things. Now, you know, something that, again, is very current because of season two dropping on Amazon is Fleabag. And I fully admit it took me four goes to get through episode one of Fleabag. I just didn't get it. I just didn't. I wasn't there. And then the fourth time went through, watched all eight episodes. And the, the thing about, don't worry, no spoiler alerts, but the thing about Fleabag is it only makes sense when you get to the final episode of season one. And then the miracle is that uh, uh, Phoebe has created a season two that is as satisfying as the first season. And that's very important. It's a rare skill. And it is not about budget. It's about having absolutely perfect casting in every role and having very witty dialogue and a singular voice that is able to express and connect with audiences, not only in her home country of England, but throughout the world. Yeah, so I just wanted to talk about, you know, for me, uh, one of my you know, favorite things is to see how, you know, there was a time when a film actor would not do television. And now, you know, people don't even say television. You know, it's episodic. And that's it's the content. Point. Meryl Streep is now doing the second season of uh, uh, Little White Lies. And that, you know, that's the biggest 
female star in the world and she's doing television and fitting right in with a team so that ha- has gone but then again bringing it back to the practicalities of this that's a very real issue because let's just say that you've got a little movie that you want to do you want to piece it together you're looking to talk to an agent about getting someone that you know someone that uh, has recognizability someone who's up and coming and so forth well you've got next to no money to offer them to get them to do it you're asking them to do it for the the good of the art form and so on but their agent knows that netflix will be coming with a three season deal or marvel will be coming with a three picture deal and that is what will keep the agency open running and viable and there's nothing you can do about it so um the interesting names and so forth are being approached for that kind of work and that means it's really changed things it's it's meant that the playing field is more open that uh, uh big actors will do small films uh but it means that you are constantly having to negotiate and with the gatekeepers and that's with the agents and today again as we speak and as we put together this podcast uh, we are in the middle of a strike where the agents and the writers are not talking and are not going to be talking for several more days and eventually it's going to come down the line and lead to a shortage of material yeah i mean then we were talking about these changes in the industry you started off in the VHS era. Yeah. And, you know, this arc all the way now to this digital transformation. Did you see something like that coming? Did it happen fast? Did it happen oh, that faster than you anticipated? Fast. I mean, I remember getting a Netflix subscription in order to watch House of Cards. I remember vividly and just not understanding how a something was being streamed getting one's head around that that here globally available was something that was uh, could be summoned on demand and that phrase video on demand near video on demand x video on demand SVOD and so on and so forth learning that process and that was something that you know I really have done uh, a nine years ago uh, um, 2010 2011 um, and it was shortly after 2009 when Avatar came and Jim Cameron and Jim Janopoulos the studio chief at Fox had transformed cinemas in the space of 18 months so they could show 3D digital technology uh, for that film that changed the industry and um, so the last 10 years have been absolutely monumental and have changed entertainment every bit as much as the advent of colour or the advent of sound uh, because how we enjoy film and the fact that our kids now see um, as likely to watch their entertainment on a phone as they are on a big cinema screen is challenging liberating and also ultimately a little bit disappointing um, because it does make that cinema experience rarer but it also means that going to the cinema is going to become as special and rare as going to the theatre it's as simple as that and that's sad because for a century uh, cinema going has been the art form of the masses 
And, and it did happen fast. Very. Um, so I just and no, this is kind of on the longer side, but you've had a storied career. So um, if you just you know bear with me for just a few more minutes, um, I believe that the industry now has become more global. Absolutely. When I started in the business, it was 60% American and 40% foreign, as it was called then. And then it rapidly became 50-50. And that was at the end of the 80s. And it's grown and grown uh, ever since, the importance of international. So that it really isn't far off 2080 now, Um, especially, obviously, in the last three years, the rise of China, which has been absolutely colossal. But not that much money has been seen out of that into the West. It's a huge numbers are going and it's affecting a lot of things. But there are immense problems in China uh, because it's a, a unique government and one that wants to spread its influence around the world, but also wants to keep a very firm grasp on what is shown. And so censorship is going to be an issue. Um, But there's still masses of growth to come in entertainment. Um, India is being transformed. Uh, There will be more than 100 streaming services in India by the end of the year. Uh, And that's many more times than there is in in the uh, USA or Europe or China um, and it's the biggest change to society since partition in 1947 uh, because villages that didn't have a television set two years ago now have um, everybody in the village walking around with a mobile phone and watching entertainment so that's a colossal and very sudden change to the way people are entertained um, and that uh, you nobody is yet talking about Africa. And Africa is 1.3 billion people. 40% of Africa don't have access to the internet. And that's going to change. Streaming is going to come there. I've long been interested in cinemas in Africa. And it's really a lost cause. But because entertainment will be consumed on mobile phones and pads, whoever controls soccer will control the media in Africa uh, because the uh, appetite for the sport is so immense Um, but also people are going to consume far more music uh, through the video means and it's going to go back to the days of the 1980s in the USA and Europe in that people are going to share music uh, through audio visual communication and that's extremely exciting so I like to say that The 19th century belonged to us, the English. The 20th century belonged to America. But the 21st century will belong to China, India. And then, eventually, in the second half of the century, to Africa. Wow, and that's something. My best friend actually lives in Nigeria. (laughs) You know, huge market there. I mean, the films may be four or five hours long, some of them. (laughs) But they they produce a lot of uh, content. They do, uh, and that was originally on video cassette, and now that's all changing, went to DVD, and now to streaming. But storytelling is universal. It's the old cliche, but everywhere on the planet, whether it's Eskimos or uh, uh, um, uh, 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 African or Asian or American, storytelling is as, as old as humanity. And how those stories are told technically will change and will continue to evolve, but that's what it all comes down to. And so 
I, I'm not negating the power of Star Wars or Pixar in terms that they've uh, polished and refined the art of storytelling, but each and every one of us has stories to tell, and how we get that across is the art of movie making, and that is what is done, what is traded in, what is shared, and what is experienced here at MMFM. Okay, so I just have one cap, and I always have this cap at the end, which is advice. Mm-hmm. What advice could you impart? First of all, what advice would you impart to yourself when you, for, if yourself now could give advice to the self starting in the industry, you know, back in the VHS days, and then what advice would you give to someone starting now? Um, I think that I've done things pretty much that have been true to myself all the way through. There isn't that much that I would change. Je ne regrette rien. Um, but I do have... Uh, I, I do wonder if I'd come to America earlier, if I'd taken uh, a more... Um, Uh, studied path into working with the studios I think I'd have lost a lot of my edge on that because I don't think I was necessarily a player in that corporate environment which is what has rapidly uh, happened uh, that those uh, film studios have become more corporate Um, so I I think that's the the issue is, is how much further and I don't think I'd have changed very much and the advice I give is simply reach out uh, only connect and it just uh, talk to people share stories ask for advice don't don't stalk you know don't um, just keep going on and on and uh, becoming like the ancient mariner and um, it's it, it, because it's spooky because it's like dating you know you can tell if people want to talk to you and you can tell if people want to share and that's the great thing about this industry is people do want to share they want to uh, 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 tell stories and they want to share their experience and they want want to help you tell a better story they want you to uh, maximize yourself and to maximize your reach to an audience because it's good for all of us and we don't want things just to be dominated uh, so that all we've got is the avengers we want to have a menu that covers every nation and it's my fundamental belief that if we look at more stories from more places their world will be a better place because cinema is that that's why i'm here is that if we understand the stories that are coming from other countries that we don't know and haven't visited and may never visit we will have a greater understanding and we will realize that we all share a common humanity and that's what it's all about okay so wow that's a great way to cap it off um thank you mr brett this has been an amazing interview an amazing journey thank you kevin and i look forward to seeing you at the next mmfm and we're back we are back good work my friend that was some heat that was some screen caliente (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean paul really laid it out he did and you know what what i love is hearing past present and future right and he did definitely cover that you could see why his career has been uh so far reaching Mm. and has lasted so long and is you know moving forward in a big way i mean he spoke about the global and international marketplace yeah which is apropos 
to what we talked about in the intro of right. this podcast, which is, you know, Netflix. Certainly, you know, to see Netflix a very it started as idea. a very yeah. small local company it and did. now has become one of the biggest international companies in the world. Yeah. And, and it's you say international. And Paul said a lot about connections and relationships. But I think when when you are a media company or when you are someone that's putting that content out there, those connections and those relationships don't just mean what we used to refer to as the domestic or the U.S. Now, really, the international is so important and keeping those relationships and those connections in not only North America, but Latin America, the Caribbean, Europe, Asia, India, China. Yeah. Those regions represent billions of people. Yeah. The Chinese box office has become one of the biggest box office hits there is yeah. to capture that marketplace. Yeah. Yeah. To and capture that marketplace and to capture you know, India, again, billions and Africa. And Africa. You know, Paul Brett spoke, spoke about Africa. Yeah. Because now because of technology, you're you have individuals in very remote parts of the world that ordinarily would it would be cut off from the latest news trends and popular culture and now everyone has access to it through their phones and the internet you know those screens now fit in our pockets and are accessible to more people than ever in the history of mass communication and it's something because i remember when the the thought of you know will people watch something on a small screen right right is Distant history. Right. The most watched screen. Yeah. As of, and I spoke about this in the first podcast, the most watched screen as of two years ago, a year and a half, two years ago, the cell phone. Sure. Now, now, granted, there is something to be said, you know, if you are a cinephile or a filmmaker, the idea of seeing something in a large screen and that whole thing, I think it still has a place. No, the thing is, we say it still has a place, but I mean, box office, we just talked about Disney having its biggest box office year, and this year is not even up. So right. people are going to the box office. There is this experience that can't be replaced. Right. This shared experience. And also the grandeur of watching these types of movies on the big screen. Um, and this is something else I wanted to talk about. And this is a little bit of a departure. I saw Captain Marvel okay. on the IMAX. Hmm. And to really feel that experience on the IMAX. And, you know, any of these big blockbuster bonanza movies, there's a difference between even watching it. You, know, you don't have a big screen TV at home. But, I mean, even watching it and it's around sound and everything. Right. But it, it pales in comparison to watching it on that big screen. And also... You know, getting the reaction and that feeling from the people in the theater. Yeah. You can't replace that. You can. Yeah. Now, there is something that I was on a, a, a live face, a Facebook live over the weekend. Uh, it's called uh, Sci-Fi Saturdays. And they spoke about how Captain Marvel is not getting the this, this similar VOD. Hmm. And, you know, there's still DVD sales, you know, uh, as some of the other, other Marvel properties. And there's a little bit of a panic. Because it's not getting that same reciprocal benefit. And, you know, we spoke about the reasons for that. I think that Captain Marvel played very, very well in this big format and maybe is not playing as well in this smaller format. Maybe that story is not translating as well. Hmm. And that's that, that's a film that did very well in the international marketplace. Right. But again, when you talk about VOD and you talk about where, again, these Disney properties are going, you know, Captain Marvel being obviously a Marvel IP, which is Disney. Again, maybe some of that shift has to do with them now 
being a little bit more reserved where these uh, these these films are exhibited because again they want those eyeballs going to their own platform in several months and maybe that's part of the marketing hook and they'll recapture it yeah 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 I'm sure the same thing's going to happen with the Lion King you know you're not going to be able to see that anywhere else except where Disney wants those eyeballs to go yeah so well this is something because I saw the Lion King two weeks ago I really enjoyed it I mean the CG the Photorealism, I think that's what they're calling it. The photorealism right. experience was just second to none. Mm-hmm. I still am an animated version fan. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, I read an article, sci-fi. Okay. And the article said that the voice performances did not match the voice performances of the animated version. Right. And... That's what a lot of people are talking about. You know, does it raise that bar to that level? It still performed phenomenally and is in right. the international marketplace. I think it's up to 700 or 800 million now. But but again, how much is that the film on its own versus what, again, talking about legacy brands, having families and now new generations, I took my two daughters to see it and, and have to do with the fact that this is a story that Disney has been promoting since the early 90s, essentially in various forms. And now having that just sort of be the sail in, in the wind in the sail of, of the new version. Now, yes, cinematically with the CGI, it's breathtaking to look at. But for us that grew up on the original animated version, I think that there is a little bit of a of a distance a sort of uh we i i felt less of a connection to the new one than i did the original but again it could have been because that's what i was first exposed to when i was young how did your uh, daughters feel about it i think they liked it you know maybe you think? We'll, we'll have to put them on they can... <laughs> i mean no I mean, you you i mean you would know though right i, I think they liked it you know uh, they're five and three so it's like you know they they, they get a little antsy I, I think sitting through an hour and a half two hour movie in the theater two hours they love the experience you know mm-hmm. it's but it i don't know i felt like this version skews a little older demographically i think because of the photorealism right you know it feels a little bit more visceral obviously the animated version it kind of takes you into this sort of wonderland it's this sort of escape it feels more like just this sort of it's still a coming of age story there's still violence there's still death there's still life that you deal with in the film and the animated version but i just felt like the original one catered to a younger audience i think this one actually caters to the nostalgia of when we were younger but now we are sort of reconsuming it as as young adults and that's what brands you know having this long-standing brand engagement right i guess that's what does it that's what does it and you know this change in the marketplace we talked about you know this blurring of lines between not even television it's not considered television you know content right versus, you know, your film and cinematic experience. Right. And how that's transformed over time and still is transforming. Yeah. So I mean that's another interesting caveat. But the fact that Paul Brett has moved with the ebbs and flows of the marketplace. Mm. And, you know, you're gonna hear in one of our interviews coming up, Prashant Shaw, yeah, who really speaks on that because he he came from the technology right realm. Right. And he was key on some of the biggest changes in just the tech world and he says in his interview that he saw a trend which was content and that content then was going to be commoditized 
And that was going to be the next trend in terms of, uh, you know, this boom yeah. in terms of the marketplace. But you're really feeling this now. Yeah. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about because we haven't spoken as much about, you know, this episodic content and TV. One of my favorite shows, which is on HBO, it's called Secession. And I don't know if you've seen that show, but if you have not, you're going to have to go and see it. Secession is about a media family. Mm. They're saying that it is borrowed a lot from the Murdochs. Interesting. A lot from the Redstone family, which mm. is uh, Viacom. Right. And the Murdochs is Rupert Murdoch and Fox and, you know, that whole uh, family. Yeah. And a lot of the ups and downs of those families. And then the transformation, you know, mm. over time of right. the industry, these big media conglomerates. Sure. And so, you know, you're really looking at how these big media conglomerates are then being eaten by bigger companies. Sure. Well, and Disney bought Fox. So there you go. Disney bought Fox. AT&T, the telecommunications company. Right. But what was Time Warner that now has become Warner Media. And now you're going to have HBO Max. Yeah. It's almost as if the entire world is now starting to consume their very existence through screens and content. And that could be a very exciting thing if you're a content creator, if you're someone that that felt like removed. But it can also be a very scary thing because now we're all plugged into the pipe. I plugged into the pipe, you the know, Matrix. The Matrix. The I was just, that, Matrix. That's the image that literally popped into my head. That's <laughs> that's a scary thought, but an interesting one, which I think we'll pick up again on the next podcast. We've got some great interviews coming up. We're we're gonna tease it at that. We're not gonna say specifically who the next one is. You'll have to tune in and find out when we announce it next week. But in the meantime, we hope you enjoyed Paul Brett. We hope you enjoyed my good friend Kevin Sharpley. And to all the cast, crew, sponsors. And JL Martinez. JL Martinez. Big shout out to Patty Arias, Camacol, the Miami Media and Film Market. You guys, Kajik Multimedia, Multimedia. Cinevision, the whole team that makes this happen. Uh, We're very excited to be doing this. And we're very excited that you've tuned in once again and stayed to the very end. Screen Heat Miami. Until the next one. Dolly. Boom.